Thank you very much, Sarah. And uh, it's my privilege to be speaking to you this morning about the book of Jonah. If uh, you have a Bible in front of you, that will be a great help. I'm not going to read out the whole book, although it only takes about 14 minutes to read through the book of Jonah. Um, but it is a great help if you can have that open in front of you. Um, we do have with us a set of Persian Bibles, and uh, we encourage um, you to follow along in the language that is easiest for you to understand. And so the, the, the book of Jonah in the Persian Bibles is, I think, on 1,169. Could someone perhaps share that number so that people can locate it more easily? Um, and there are also clipboards, because uh, all ages are in the, the meeting together. I thought it would be helpful for people, if they want to, just to take some notes, to fill in some gaps in, in my sermon. Um, and if you're following along uh, with the translation app, then uh, I hope that will help you. You can choose your language, and it will come through in the language that you want. If you click on three dots at the top, you can also choose to have the English come through, and then the language that you choose uh, next to it as well. So I hope all those things are of some help, but the greatest help will be if God himself comes to teach us by his Spirit. So I will pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are the living God, you are a speaking God, and by your Spirit you can work powerfully in our hearts. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts burn within us as we hear the scriptures open to us. We ask this for your glory and for the good of this city that we love, the city of Oxford. Amen. Well, I wanted to uh, begin with three reasons why I love the book of Jonah. This is a one-off sermon before we begin a series looking at the topic of money, I, I gather. But Jonah is a great book for a number of reasons. For one of them, personally, uh, it's about Jonah and the Assyrians. And we lived in Assyria for 11 years. And so Jonah is kind of a, a local boy for me. Now, Nineveh is a city that lies in ruins in the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And we weren't able to go there because of the terrorism in that city. But we did often visit the mountains. And I used to take people uh, mountain biking and to see where the king of Assyria had split the river in two, and he carried this fresh mountain water along a canal, and then it got to a dip in the ground, and he created this amazing aqueduct, which you can still see today. And on the stones, you can see written, if you can read cuneiform, which I can't, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the king of the world. And we used to sit there eating kebabs and drinking tea. Nineveh! is a real place, even though it lies in ruins. And so don't think of Jonah and the whale uh, alongside Jack and the Beanstalk or Cinderella as some fairy tale, a bit of make-believe. No, this is a real historical story about one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. And a second reason why I love the book of Jonah is that this book is important not just to Christians but to Jews and to Muslims. You may not know that one of the chapters in the Quran, the holy book of Muslims, is called Jonah. And he's mentioned, I think, five or six times in the Quran. You may come across a boy at school with you called Yunus, and you might think, hmm, that's a girl's name, Yunus, isn't it? 
But no, Eunice is the name Jonah. And Jonah is very important to our Muslim friends. And so it's a great book to open with uh, Muslim friends. Perhaps people who are, who, who are learning English, you can say, well, let's have a read in your language, Spanish, Farsi, Kurdish, or whatever, and then we'll read it in English. And it's a great learning exercise and a way to get into this fascinating book in the Old Testament. And then a third reason why I love this book is because it reveals Jonah to have been a racist. Now, you might be a bit surprised, but you hear a lot of people talking about racism today, and it's a terrible evil. But as we come on to chapter 4, I'll just leave this in as a teaser, we find that Jonah was guilty of racism. And so there's a very important lesson for the 21st century in this book. Anyway, if you'll excuse the pun, we need to dive in with Jonah chapter 1 and follow the story of this prophet Jonah. It says at the beginning of the book, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Now this verse is actually very surprising because Jewish prophets were nearly always sent to Jews. But here Jonah received a message to go right outside the promised land and head to the Assyrians. Could someone... um, Move on to the map, if possible, on the screen. If it's not there, don't worry. It's easy to imagine the details. Here we go. And Jonah was called to go off to Nineveh, and he decided to go in the opposite direction. But let's just note this for now, that you might think in the Old Testament that God is only concerned for the Jews. But no, Israel were God's plan to bring blessing to all the nations. And that is seen very clearly here in the book of Jonah. And so we too should be concerned to bring the good news of Jesus to people of other nationalities and languages. Here in East Oxford, there are people with many different languages from many different nations. And it should be our privilege to speak to not just our friends that we meet at the gym or at the workplace, but to speak to taxi drivers, to shopkeepers, to people we meet at the school gate, and to tell them about the Lord Jesus. But there was something that was particularly difficult for Jonah, and that was he was being sent to their arch enemies, the Assyrians. Assyria was the superpower of the day. So think America, Russia, China, the most powerful countries And that was Assyria back then. But we would call them today a terror state. They were known for their torture, for their ethnic cleansing. Go and look at their own artwork that they inscribed on stone. Uh, One of them has the picture of the king of Assyria with a spear that he is putting in someone's eye and then a hook that he's either putting in the nose or the lip of one of his torture victims. Lovely people, weren't they? I want you to imagine, just to to bring this into the modern day, imagine you're a Ukrainian believer, and despite all the horrors of this last year, you are rejoicing that in the last 30 years, many churches have been planted around Ukraine. He has has blessed that country. But then your church, for 2023, decides to send you on a mission to preach the gospel in Moscow. Moscow. And everything inside you says, Russia? 
The country that has been bombing us, that has been destroying our infrastructure, murdering us, these are our enemies. I want them just to be wiped out and destroyed to get a taste of their own medicine. Why would I go and preach good news to the Russians? Now, you may be able to relate to that in a different way. But that was what it must have felt for Jonah, who had such hatred for the Assyrians. But let's see, this was God's call to go and preach to Nineveh. But the second point we've got is about Jonah's rebellion. He's he's heard the call, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then look at verse 3 with me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. So as you saw from that map, Tarshish, you had Assyria over here, and Tarshish was in somewhere around Spain in exactly the opposite direction. Now Jonah was a prophet. That meant that he explained God's word to people, and he would have known this proverb, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I know that because of the Steve Green song. If you Google it, you'll get a very memorable song, and you won't forget Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But what's Jonah doing? He ran away from the Lord. What a schoolboy error. If God is everywhere, what's he doing sailing away to Tarshish? It's very perverse. And we could say, and I put it on the handout, uh, if you want to fill in the gap there. As a famous prophet, Jonah talked the talk, but as we say in English, he didn't walk the walk. They say in Kurdish, he, he talks, but he doesn't bake. You see, he was a hypocrite. What he said did not match what he did. So here we have a very honest picture of a preacher who ran from God. And you know, there's a Jonah instinct inside all of us that we say to God, no, I'm not going to obey you. It's a little bit like you go to the park and you find that there's a section of the grass that's been roped off. So you can kick your football around, you can throw your frisbee anywhere, but not inside the roped off area because they're reseeding the ground, they're, they're mending the grass. And we're a bit like that with God. We say, yeah, I'm fine about coming to church. Yeah, I'll read my Bible sometimes. But no, God, you're not going to touch my bank account. That's mine. What I do in my bedroom, that's for me. That's not for you to change. Or love love your enemies. But no, I hate that boy or that girl in the playground. There's no way I'm going to start loving him. That, children, is being like Jonah, running away from what God is telling us to do. And Jonah seems to have been happy enough being a prophet until God challenges his love of his own country and says, now go and preach in Nineveh. So Jonah runs away from God. But God has a way of bringing us back when we push him out of our lives. In Jonah's case, it was a terrifying storm. Do you remember that in the reading? 
God sent this storm because Jonah was disobedient. And the storms that we face in our lives can often be very painful. And we wonder, why is God making my life so difficult? God sometimes sends us illness or some trouble at home or school. Or think about this one that we're often talking about, 11% inflation. If as a child you don't understand economics, or, or adults don't understand economics very well, what it means is that the food is getting so much more expensive. And you probably heard your parents talking about that. It's a storm that we in Britain are having to deal with. And these storms that God sends are a message from him so that we say, okay, I'll admit it, I've been a fool. I tried running from God, things have really gone south, and I need to face up to my sin. Well, if you look with me at, at the details in verse 4, it says the storm is so violent, the ship threatened to break up. I guess many of us have never been in a sea storm. I've seen a little bit of it, but in quite big, sturdy boats. But you can be in a little boat, and literally the waves are up like the ceiling above you. And you're seeing them crash down on you. And it is terrifying. But Jonah said, we don't know how he knew this, but he said, I know what will stop the storm. You throw me in and, and I'll die, but you'll all be safe. So the idea was that one man would die so that the other people can live. Does that remind you of anyone? If you know the Bible you'll know that 800 years after Jonah came a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he came to die so that millions of other people could be safe. He is like Jonah. He himself said, just as Jonah was in the, in the, the, the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth. Meaning he would die so that we could be safe. So I want to begin this at the end of the first point, do you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross? You can be safe like those sailors were safe. They must have been amazed to see it th that it happened, just as Jonah said. We're on to sec the second point now, God's grace. The sailors get saved from a terrifying storm and a watery grave. They are saved, even though Jonah, if you think about it, he has gone in the opposite direction. He said no to God's plan to go and save other nations. And what happens? God's plan is still fulfilled. These sailors, people of other nations, they come to worship Yahweh, the true God. They make sacrifices to him. Praise God. His plan is unstoppable. But the focus in this book of Jonah is not on the sailors. The focus is on Jonah. And we don't have time to, to look much at chapter 2. I would encourage you to go home and read chapter 2, the poem there, in your own time. It's a, it's a great read. And it's a bit like ammunition that we can store up for the fight that may come up in 2023. You may face very dark and difficult times. Something completely unexpected may happen to you this year. And if you do, try and have these words of Jonah with you to see you through that storm. And let's notice one thing in, in Jonah's... Uh, well, I mean, if we, if we just pick up the story in basic form, in verse 17 at the end of 
chapter 1. It says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then if you go on to the end of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So that's the story in basic form, that Jonah was kept safe because he was in the water, and I don't suppose he saw it, but he was in the water, and this huge great fish swallowed him up. It can't have been very nice inside the fish, but at least it saved him from drowning. And he wrote this poem talking about his experience. And he said, I think the key thing, that if you've got that handout on the clipboard, try and find the verse that I'm referring to. It says, those, well, I'll tell you which verse it is, and you can write it in. Verse 8 says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. The meaning seems to be that I know now how much I've been loved by God. Only Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who loves us and saves us. And so Jonah seems to grasp this point that we need to go to to those who, who worship worthless idols. We need to go to people of other nations and tell them about the deep, committed love of God for all people. And why should we go? Because we ourselves have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is our second point here about God's grace. His grace is is his generosity, his kindness towards people who don't deserve it. Jonah did not deserve God's favor. He'd run away from God and God punished him, but yet he rescued him in the heart of the sea. And he gave him an amazing lifeboat to take him back to shore. So we're going to take a break now And we're going to sing the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. This celebrates God's amazing kindness to us. The same God who rescued Jonah has come to rescue us through the Lord Jesus Christ.
a great interval. I remember as, uh, from childhood, the intervals of uh, theatres would involve someone coming around with ice cream, uh, and I'm afraid we couldn't engineer that. But we did sing a great song there, and I hope it was very sweet for you um, to sing of God's amazing grace. And now, as we've thought about God's grace towards Jonah, we're now going to look at what happened when he did go on to Nineveh, to look at the Ninevites' repentance. We see more of God's grace in um, that precious line at the beginning of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God could have said to Jonah, look, you've blown it. Your career as a preacher is over. Go back to your hometown. But no, he recommissioned him. He again sent him to Nineveh. And if we've fallen into sin... And that's something that's saddening us. Let's not wallow in our sin. Let's, with a, with a song of thanksgiving, let's thank God that there's a way back to him. And for Jonah, there was unfinished business. There was work for him to do. The moment that we are restored, God wants us to tell others about God's amazing kindness to us. I really mean that, that if you're someone here or, or you're tuning in and you're feeling a bit ashamed of yourself, you're thinking, look, let's talk about talking to the Hindu shopkeeper or the atheist neighbor about Jesus. Look, I'm, I'm just not qualified to do that. If you are ashamed of your life, that is a brilliant qualification for being a spokesman for the grace of God. We can be honest about our sin, about our waywardness, and about God's amazing generosity to people like us who don't deserve his kindness. Well, Jonah's mission to Nineveh was facing, as it were, very tall odds at the, book, uh, the bookmakers. This was the arrogant, cruel city of the Assyrian Empire. And this Jewish prophet, Jonah, came to tell them that God was going to punish them for their sin. It says on in verse 4, 
on, uh, on the first day in Nineveh, Jonah proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He didn't start by saying, God loves you Assyrians. He has a wonderful plan for your capital city. He proclaimed the message that God had given him. And it's not okay for us to change the message that God has given us for the nations. Now, his message must have held out some hope of salvation. It was a warning, not an announcement that the date had been forever fixed. Jonah no doubt told them something of his dramatic rescue from death. But he does proclaim very clearly about the coming judgment. And if you're filling in those worksheets, then don't miss that little detail. We've got bad news to tell people about judgment as well as good news about Jesus, our Savior. And this is something you find in the New Testament as well. So if you're taking notes, have a look at Acts 10, 42 and 43, and you'll find Peter saying exactly the same thing. There's bad news that God is angry with us for our sins, and Jesus is the one who can forgive us our sins. You see, until people understand that, that we're facing death and hell, they can't really understand why we need a savior to die this death for us and free us from punishment. And it is quite an unpalatable message. Jonah doesn't even come in offering a free meal or, or, or opening up a youth club with some sports activities for the Ninevite uh, teenagers, which might sweeten the pill a little bit. You can imagine the proud Assyrian scoffing. Who is this jumped-up Jew coming preaching fire and brimstone to us? Doesn't he know who we are? The greatest city of the world? But no. What followed was one of the greatest religious awakenings in the history of the world. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That was rough clothing made of goat's hair. I don't like it when you get dog's hair or cat's hair on my clothes. But can you imagine putting on a bit of clothing that's made of goat's hair? It was a way of expressing, I'm so sad about my evil that I'm prepared to just wear this, this, this horrible, coarse clothing. Even the king, you know, sometimes the politicians, you know, they're the worst of the worst, aren't they? But not always. In this case, the king was cut to the heart. He repented and he called on others to repent. So keep praying for our politicians. Let me ask you, do you believe that God can bring revival to Britain? I love in the city center, remembering there's a little college. You've got near Christ Church, you've got St. Aldate's Church. Tucked behind there is a little college called Pembroke College. And in about 1730, a boy called George, he was just the, the son of an innkeeper, no one special. He came up to study in Oxford and he became a preacher. They shut him out of the churches. They said, we don't like your fanatical message. He said, right, I'll go out into the fields. And he preached to thousands of people. And Britain, that was in the grip of this horrid, evil slave trade, and they were drinking, and they were sexually immoral, and they'd forgotten God. They'd done with Christianity. And God turned this nation around. And within a hundred years, Britain was abolishing this horrendous slave trade. If you think we're just too far gone, we've abandoned Christianity, the God of Jonah 
is still the mighty God who's given us his word. And like George Whitfield in the 1700s, we should proclaim this good news to people and pray that God will use our message to turn this country around. That is what happened with the Ninevites. And now we're on to point four, and in chapter four, and here comes an extraordinary twist in the tale. I almost get surprised every time I read this. It really isn't like the children's fables where they all lived happily ever after. Look with me at verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. So Jonah should have been running the sort of follow-up course. He's had all these people converted, and he should be doing the follow-up, discipleship explored. Instead, he's left the city, and he's sitting there, pouting like a petulant teenager. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. He made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Deep down, he still loathed the Assyrians. It was just part of his cultural makeup. They're the terror state. They're scum. Some in this room have experienced what it's like to live in a terror state. If you don't agree with our ideology, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if you hate the governments that point guns at people unless you follow their philosophy. Jonah hated these Assyrians. And he's just waiting. Oh, God, come on. Just destroy them, please. But let's be fair to Jonah. He did a runner the first time, and at least now he's praying. Look at verse 2. He says, uh, he prayed to the Lord. But... It's not so much a humble prayer. It's more like an employee appraisal. He ticks God off. He says, <sighs> he says, look, I knew this would happen. When, uh, as it says more literally in verse 2, when I was back in my country, he says, I, I, I realize this. This is your weak point, God. You always come unstuck. You're, you're, you're just so generous and you threaten the fire and brimstone and then you go all touchy-feely and you let them off. You're just too forgiving. I, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I mean, Jonah gets full marks for his Bible memory learning, doesn't he? Exodus 34, Psalm 86, he knows all that stuff. But rather than marvel at God's mercy, he's bitter about it. In verse, verse 2, he says, that is what I tried to forestall. That, that's what I tried to stop. I didn't want this happening. That's why I headed off to Tarshish. And we might have thought in chapter 1 that he, frees, he flees from God's missionary call because he's scared witless. These Assyrians, they'll flay me alive. That's why I'm heading, heading off to, to, to Costa del Tarshish. But no. It says here that he understood as a good pastor theologian that God was warning the Ninevites in order to save them. And he fled because he wanted these Assyrians wiped out. And I made the claim at the beginning, you might remember, that Jonah is a racist. It means he didn't like that race or that nation of Assyrian people. He hated them. And he had to be taught a lesson by God. In fact, 
What we know about Jonah from, uh, from, from uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 is that he was a prophet who prophesied that, that Judah's kingdom would be expanded, that, that, sorry, that Israel would become a great nation again. And so when God sent him to another nation, to his enemies, it really riled him. He wanted, God bless our nation and damn our enemies. But God said, no, I care about the Assyrians. And he gave Jonah a kind of science experiment. Okay, so you've got physics and chemistry. What sort of science experiment was this? If you look at chapter 4, it's, I guess, a biology lesson. Because Jonah has made this, this shelter for himself, probably branches. And then God improves the, the shelter for him. And he makes this, uh, this vine grow up and provide him with shelter. And, and we've lived in this kind of heat in northern Iraq. And oh, you don't want to go out before 5 p.m. out under the sun. It is just so hot. We, we loved having a vine in our front garden that could just give you a little bit of shade from that fierce sun. But Jonah, he's very, very happy that he's got this, this, this vine, this shade over his head. But then, what does it say? Verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And Jonah is really angry about this plant that has withered. And God says to him in verse 4, the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Often God asks us questions. He doesn't just preach at us like that. He asks us questions. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? No answer. Radio silence. And so God does this experiment, as I said. He, he gives him this plant, and then he takes the plant away. And the point is, God is showing Jonah that he does care. He, he's a caring guy, but what, what does he care about? He cares about me, myself, and I. He cares about his own comfort, but he doesn't care about those awful enemies, the Assyrians. And so God says to him again in verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now this section is so important. It actually follows on from what Phil was teaching two Sundays ago about our emotions. Do you remember that? He said, it's right that we show emotions, but sometimes our emotions get so skewed that they're very far from God's emotions. And there are many zealous Christians who are angry. They're angry at compromise in the church. They're angry about trans ideology. They're angry about this and, and that. And righteous anger is a good thing, but it should always grow in our hearts twinned with compassion and gentleness. It's, it's actually like what God does here is like what a surgeon does. And it's, it's a really strange and disturbing thought that a surgeon sometimes sticks a knife in your body and cuts out parts of your flesh. And yet a good surgeon sometimes has to do that to remove a, a growth, a tumor in our body which is harming us. And God is determined to take out this bitter, hating heart 
that is still inside Jonah. And in verse 10, he says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I wonder what your leafy plant is. Is there something that, that you love, that the garden in bloom, your, your new car, your favorite video games, your widescreen TV, and then one day it won't work? Ah! We get so frustrated, don't we? Why doesn't my TV work? You see, we care about our TV, our car, whatever it is. We care about our cat or our dog. But do we not care for the multitudes of people out there in the UK and elsewhere around the world? God is saying to Jonah, you want to sit back and watch me rain down burning sulfur on Nineveh? Do you really think that you, as a servant, should tell the sovereign God to wipe these guys off the map? 120,000 of them and all their animals as well. And then it's curtains. The story is over. It's such a cliffhanger. I, I don't know how that comes out on the translation. You know, a cliffhanger is when you get to the end of the episode and you don't know what's, which way is it going to go. I've got to watch, I've got to watch the next episode. And, and we want to know what, what happened to Jonah. And how, how do we get this story in here anyway? It's just Jonah. He either wrote the book or he told someone this, about this embarrassing temper tantrum. He said, just, just write it up. Just tell them what I was really like. And so we're left with the cliffhanger for ourselves. Are we going to sit there pouting, I don't care about all those people, let them go to hell? Or do we care? Is Magdalen Road going to be a church that, that does more than just welcome people in for their dancing and their art and their maths lessons in this wonderful old schoolhouse? Are we a church that wants to sit down for a cup of tea and explain to people the danger that we're all in? and the wonderful rescue plan that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to leave this ringing in your ears. Should I not care, God says, about East Oxford, in which there are 70,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cocker spaniels? <laughs> or fill in the blank. Your guinea pigs. Your parrots. Let's pray. Merciful Father, God of all comfort, we thank you that your heart yearns for lost and hardened and even violent people. When we often want to keep away from those scary streets with knife crime, you send people to proclaim that your son came into the world to save even murderers and rapists. Please keep us from being like that older brother in the parable who didn't want to join the party when his waster of a brother came home. Help us deep down to love the unlovely, to have a fresh vision of how generous you've been in rescuing us. And may you save many people in Oxford who have no believer friends. Send us out in the power of the Spirit, we ask. 
to serve you boldly. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen.